Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, a Chicago public relations and marketing firm with legal PR practice areas covering litigation, family law, and intellectual property and technology. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the like button on our social media pages. First, we have the Law Talk Radio Facebook page. Actually, we made a whole new page, and we lost some likes, so we need to get more likes. Uh, Second, we have the ProServe PR Marketing and Litigation page. Also on Facebook, you can search for those or um, just find those through links from our website at ProServePR.com. Want to let you know that you can listen to any of our episodes on demand. You can easily find the episode links on the media releases we publish for each episode. You can also visit ProServePR.com and use the embedded radio player on our Law Talk radio page right on our website. Check out some of our recent links and articles while you listen to our shows. Support for Law Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our show tonight is ARDC Updates with Melissa Smart. Melissa Smart has lectured and presented workshops regarding professional responsibility and disciplinary law to various bar associations, groups, government agencies, law firms, private organizations, and law schools. She is a recurring guest on Law Talk Radio, and today she shares some important updates on the Illinois rules for trust accounts, namely Illinois Supreme Court Rule 1.15. This is concerning, again, IOLTA accounts. Attorney Melissa A. Smart is the litigation group manager and senior counsel at the Illinois Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission of the Supreme Court of Illinois, better known as the ARDC. Ms. Smart began working at the ARDC as a law clerk back in 1997 and became counsel for the administrator in 1999. As a member of the commission's staff, For over a decade, she has investigated thousands of charges of professional misconduct and has been responsible for over 100 different formal disciplinary proceedings filed in the Supreme Court of Illinois or before various commission boards before whom she has tried dozens of matters. Website with more information is www.iardc.org. That's I is an IllinoisARDC.org. We do w- welcome callers this evening. You can certainly call into our show. We are neutral and objective, and we can certainly take your questions at 917-889-9732, then press option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. The number, again, is 917-889-9732. This is a general information and entertainment program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute professional or legal advice. Communication with licensed professionals on our shows does not generate client relationships. ProServe PR Marketing does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. And finally, all callers are confidential and rights to our broadcast are reserved. Now, as for tonight's show, uh, here are the four segments we're going to cover. First, we're going to talk about the ARDC, how to work with them proactively, and what they're all about. Uh, Next, we'll talk about changes, and the majority of our show will be talking about changes to Rule 1.15 regarding trust accounts and resources for Illinois attorneys on the same points. Then we'll uh, continue talking about trust accounts and cover some IOLTA basics for new lawyers and what you can do to ensure compliance with the law and the rules. Uh, We'll also talk about some common misconceptions about the ARDC and best practices if and when you have any questions. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Melissa Smart. Hi, Nick. How are you? I am doing well, and I thank you for your valuable time in uh, coming back on our show. Anytime. I love to do it. 
Well, I think it's a really good opportunity to share information because uh, oftentimes uh, I feel like people are afraid to call the ARDC and uh, it's kind of a, well, it is a four-letter acronym and it's a four-letter word in uh, many law firms. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving forward, um, if we could just for uh, anyone who's not listened to the show before, uh, we'll talk and we'll talk specifically towards new lawyers later. Tell us a little bit about the ARDC and your job there. Sure. Well, as, it, as the name suggests for the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission, our office is divided into two sections. Part of the office is dedicated to the registration of the attorneys in the state of Illinois. And a little known fact, with our registration um, and swearing-in ceremony that occurred in November, we registered our 90,000th attorney in the state of Illinois. So we now tap out at over 90,000 licensed attorneys that are active and licensed to practice law in the state of Illinois. They're not all here, but they are active and they hold um, legitimate licenses to practice law in the state of Illinois. So the registration branch of our office handles that. I'm a part of the disciplinary branch of the office, and what we do is we enforce the rules of professional conduct. We investigate charges of violations of the rules, and where necessary, we litigate those cases. Um, and that's more what my job is. I'm a litigator. Um, I manage a litigation group of attorneys who are dedicated to investigating and prosecuting allegations of professional misconduct. If there's a rule violation, we'll go ahead and take it to a hearing panel and we'll determine an appropriate sanction. So that's basically what, what the office does. We're a commission of the Supreme Court of Illinois. Um, the court back in the 70s decided that there was, they needed a permanent body to um, stop this problem of attorneys committing professional misconduct, and our agency was born. All right. Now, and you just had a birthday. I think our last show, I know it was back in February, but how old is the ARDC now? Um, the ARDC, oh, goodness, now I can't remember. I think it's over 30 years old, 35 years old. All right, I think um, it, it was. was in, yeah. it, you know what? Yeah, I think it was in 73, so I, it actually might even be 38 years old. Now I can't remember. Well, but it was it's February 1st of, I think, 73 is when the office came into existence. Older than I am. Me too, but not by much. <laughs> I yeah, won't my age. <laughs> same here. The ARDC has a couple of years on me, but not too much. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. So tell us real quickly, if some, you know, for the uh, benefit of our, our listeners who uh, have to go or don't have time to listen to the whole program, uh, about working proactively with the ARDC and how people should – how you would like people to perceive the group? Well, you know, we've we've we have a mission statement at the ARDC, and we're not just there to prosecute or scare attorneys. And I think that's the key function, and that's why I'm always happy to participate in presentations, radio shows, or any kind of speeches, because part of our responsibility is to fulfill an outreach goal and effort so that we can reach out to attorneys and help them understand the rules of professional conduct. That's part of our mission. We're not just there to prosecute. We're there also to engage attorneys in a dialogue regarding the rules of professional conduct. When changes come about, our first and foremost goal is always to educate the attorneys. Like we'll speak later about the changes to Rule 1.15. It affects all attorneys who handle money from their clients. It's a very far-reaching and sweeping changes to the rules. The, immediately upon you know notification from the court that these rule changes were going to come down, the administrator of my office, my boss, set about educating the public. We sent out email alerts. We started um, 
you know, what I would informally call a speaking tour on these, you know, new rule changes. And we tried to inform attorneys as much as possible before we get to the part where people are violating the rules and we have to do a prosecution or we have to, you know, go a, a different disciplinary route. Our, our goal is to do outreach. Um, our office has many functions, but I think that's one of the most important. And what people tend to forget is, in addition to the prosecutorial arm of, of our agency, we also have um, a, on our website webinars that are available, that are free, and that qualify for CLE credit for attorneys. Free CLE credit, that's on the website, www.iardc.org. At any given time, we have at least three or four hours up there. Not only are these webinars informative, but you also get your CLE hours. In addition to that, we also, also have an ethics inquiry hotline. So individual attorneys who have questions can call our office Keep the questions hypothetical. We always ask that they remain anonymous and hypothetical, but we will give you guidance with regard to the rules of professional conduct. If we're aware of case law that's applicable, we'll direct you to the case law as well. Um, so our, our office really has a goal of, you know, making the process more easily and accessible to attorneys so that the rules are understandable. Well, that couldn't be more transparent. I, I mean, I hope so. I mean, it's stated right there in our mission statement and in everything that we do. I mean, and before we get to the point where we're at, you know, we're going into our courtroom and we're prosecuting attorney, there's many, many steps along the way that have to take place because we really, I mean, that's not anyone's goal over there is to disbar attorneys. That's not what we're there for. You know, we want to educate. We have diversionary programs. We have probationary programs. We run an ethics school. It's informally called the ethics school. I think it's called the law office management practice, something or other, officially. But we have an ethics school, so we can divert attorneys who, you know, may not have uh, need for public discipline where they're suspended. But it, they, you know, we sense that something's going on where they may need a refresher course on how to um, run their practice, how to manage their business. Because we understand in law school, you don't necessarily learn how to run a business. So, you know, we have many um, levels in place so that attorneys can receive education and information about the rules of professional conduct. You know, and it's also, I think, a, a good thing to note that with so many people who have uh, landed in different spots, offices, and uh, descriptions of whatnot through the last five years of economic turmoil, we may have people... I'm here. Okay. All right. Are you still there, Melissa? Are you still there? Yep, I'm here. Okay. Sorry, lost you temporarily, just for a second. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, uh, no, mm -hmm. my my uh, internet went out. You know, the technology oh. is great when it works. Yeah. Other time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I thought it was my end. No, the show continues to go on. The show records whether we're there or not. Always go on, yes. Always good. So anyways, as I was saying, uh, there may be attorneys out there who uh, were in one capacity at one point in time and now are potentially in a management capacity and need to learn some of these things where someone else previously had been tasked on that. So um, really, so many good resources for those attorneys to find out new rules and uh, and what's going on. Um, so my, my question for you is... Uh, 
ha- have you been able to, or does the ARDC at all measure, um, I know I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but measure uh, effectiveness or see any um, you know, change in the amount of disciplinary proceedings and complaints with so many more resources in place? You know, it's an interesting question, and as a matter of fact, because like any other government office, we are at heart a bureaucracy. Um, every year we compile data on that, and we actually make that data public um, in by way of our annual report. You can actually find our annual report on our website. Um, it takes us a while to compile the data because, again, we're a government office. But usually around late April to early May every year, we'll come out with our annual report, which will we'll cite the data from the preceding year. Now, um, the, right now, you'd find on our website the data for the year 2010. We're in the in the process right now of compiling our data and statistics for 2011, and that will be that will come out um, somewhere around late April to early May. Um, we actually, it's interesting. We are seeing a little bit of a drop in the amount of investigations we get now. I have to give you a little bit of a definition, not to bore you to death too much. But we, you know, we use terms of art, and what, when we get um, let's say, a complaint from the public. Someone says, my attorney didn't do something right. We call that a request for investigation. We average about 6,000 requests for investigation that we receive per year. And every time we get a request for investigation, we open up a file and we investigate that file. Only when it gets to the point where we feel we have um, clear and convincing evidence to prove that the individual has committed a violation of the rules of professional conduct. And then only after an inquiry panel, which acts like a grand jury, votes formal disciplinary charges, do we have what's called a disciplinary complaint. We only get about 100 to 120 disciplinary complaints filed per year. So that's a significant difference. We get 6,000 requests for investigation. We only take about 100 to 120 to formal complaint. So you can only guess we get about 5,000 complaints that we close every every single year. So um, when you talk about statistics, that 6,000 number, it's actually dropped. It's only dropped by a couple hundred. I think last year we got, you know, 5,800. Um, the preceding year was 5,700, somewhere around 5,600 around there. So we've gotten a little bit of a drop in our requests for investigation. Um, statistically, our complaints still hover around the 100 mark, um, but we'll see how this year goes. I'm not too sure um, what the number was from 2011. But I do think that part of that is because of the accessibility of our outreach efforts and just the educational component of what we do. I mean, I, I like to think that. I don't mean, you know, want to sound overly optimistic. But I do think it's helpful. Um, I think with the our Internet access and with the amount of outreach we can do just via the Internet and social media, um, I think it really uh, helps us to get our message across. I I did not know that you were on social media. So is the ARDC on Facebook? Well, actually, we are investigating our options in that regard. Um, uh-huh. As you, one can imagine, um, we would be a little reluctant to have just your average everyday Facebook account where people could post things to our wall because <laughs> I'm sure there's a few <laughs> people out there that might not say the nicest things about us, given that we do discipline attorneys. Yeah, or lawyers. Um, Right. Facebook. Oh my God, the ARDC might find this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many likes we would get from those people, but um, <laughs> but we are investigating and other agencies. You know, there's there we have uh, sister agencies like the Lawyers Assistance Program or the Commission on Professionalism that have Twitter accounts 
and we're exploring our options with those as well. We also engage in um, email alerts. There's actually going to be an email alert soon. I don't want to tip everyone off to uh, you know, confidential information, but we're going to be having an email alert where the commission, the ARDC, uh, sends a mass email out to everyone who's provided us with their email address. And um, it gives them tips and warnings. This current one, we're seeing an, an interesting and kind of uh, disheartening trend in the profession now where attorneys are getting involved in um, like mortgage fraud and loan modification schemes and scams. And we have developed an email alert that will be going out shortly regarding that and how attorneys can steer clear of getting themselves involved in those um, those scams because it does result in professional misconduct charges against the attorneys, even if they are merely a pawn in some larger mortgage fraud scheme. Um, it's the attorney who will lose their license. So that's just one example of the email alert. Um, at the time that Rule 1.15 was changed, um, we did another email alert. So outreach efforts like that, I think, I think they're, um, they're serving a good purpose. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear that you've had first a reduction in the amount of complaints, especially with the increase in the number of uh, licensed attorneys uh, here in Illinois. And uh, it's so great that you're doing all that outreach to let people know because one of the comments I heard from someone uh, years and years ago who used to sit on uh, ARDC panels told me that the majority of people just don't respond to complaints. And uh, for fear of not, you know, no, people don't want to say the wrong thing, so they'll err on the side of saying nothing. And um, it's so great to have so many resources there so that there's a two-way dialogue. We're going to pause for our first uh, event message and break here, and then we'll come back with segment two, and we'll dive right into the updates to Rule 1.15, again, regarding trust of the uh, IOLTA accounts. All right, we want to tell you that it is time for the ABA Tech Show 2012. It's coming up this weekend. It actually starts on Thursday. Mark your calendar. The event takes place Thursday. Actually, starts Thursday the 28th, and uh, the exhibition hall will be open March 29th, 30th, and 31st. I'll tell you more in our next break. Um, some more details. Also, want to let you know that um, coming up in June, the all attorneys and legal investigators should take note of this. This summer in Chicago at the Hotel Ave Crown Plaza on June 7th through June 9th, the National Association of Legal Investigators, known as NALI, holds its national conference to celebrate NALI's 45th anniversary. Presenters at the event include Cynthia Hetherington, Nick Augustine, Andrea Lyon, Todd Thorne, Jed Stone, and representatives from Dynamic Safety LLC and Reed and Associates. Those names might be better known to investigators out there. Um, there will be information on their website coming up soon. Um, they want to let you know that attorneys are encouraged to attend the event, and as always, the presenters for the NIST NALI conference are the best of the best in their fields, and you will learn new information that you can take home and put to use immediately. The presentations are balanced with criminal, civil, and general litigation issues to best educate all attending NALI members and attorneys who are learning more about working with NALI certified investigators. Public defender colleagues, paralegals, and attorneys are encouraged to attend this event. If you would like more information, please direct your inquiries to the Office for NALI, the National Association of Legal Investigators, at area code 517-372-1500. That telephone number again is area code 517 517- 372-1500. Now back to our show with our guest, Melissa Smart, from the ARDC here in Illinois. We're talking about updates to uh, ARDC generally and most specifically changes to Rule 1.15 regarding IOLTA trust accounts. Back to our guest, Melissa Smart. 
Hello. All right, Melissa. Let's get right down into the nitty-gritty of it. Let's start with maybe what the rule was before, what people might be used to, and what the changes are and what the rule is now. Well, the rule, if you take a look, and on our website we actually have a red line version. Attorneys love those when it comes to statutes. When you can take a look specifically at the before and the after and the changes, the rule's been changed significantly. Um, And it's been changed in three major ways. The first is, Um, The rule formerly allowed for non-interest-bearing trust accounts, where attorneys could hold client monies in non-interest-bearing trust accounts. Now the rule states that there are only two types of client trust accounts allowed, IOLTA accounts and non-IOLTA accounts, and both of those have to be in interest or dividend-bearing accounts. So there's no more no-interest-bearing accounts allowed. Um, The second major change to the rule, and the one that affects most practitioners, I think, um, and is the one where we're seeing um, a little bit of a a reluctance to get on board with this amongst the practitioners, is the um, record-keeping requirements. And that's Rule 1.15, subsection A, 1 through 8. And basically, it outlines specific ledgers and journals that attorneys have to keep when they're holding client money. Basically, it it mandates specific accounting procedures that an attorney has to put in place. Now, it's not that complicated. Um, When I say accounting procedures, most attorneys run the other direction. They don't want to hear about, you know, mandatory accounting procedures. It just specifies that the, when an attorney holds client funds, they have to put that, they have to account for those funds in spe- specific journals and ledgers. And the rule itself is very specific with the way that it's got to be held. So it's very easy to read the rule and understand exactly what it's asking for. But if there's further questions, we have samples of the ledgers on our website. So you just pull them off our website and use those. Um, and I'll get into the specifics a little bit in, 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 with regard to that in a little bit. But the third major change, and this one affects our office probably the most, is mandatory overdraft notification. Um, now, whenever a bank has agreed to hold client funds to operate an IOLTA account for their client, the attorney, they now have to abide by our direction and the Supreme Court's rule now that states that if that account is overdrafted, they have to notify our office. Now, so those are the three specific and biggest changes to Rule 1.15. An interesting note to this is that this rule came down July 1, 2011 from the court. It came into effect September 1, 2011. So we had a few months with which to educate the public, to educate ourselves. I mean, that was our first goal. We had to educate ourselves and make sure we understood how we were going to operate with this new rule. And also we had to get the banks on board because the banks, given the environmental, the um, the climate, the current business climate with interest rates so low, banks were rather reluctant. I mean, they really didn't have a vested interest in holding these short-term nominal funds in the IOLTA account. So we had to get the banks on board as well. And if you're ever interested in getting a list of the banks that qualify for IOLTA accounts and would qualify for our 1.15 provisions, that's on our website or it's on um, the Lawyer's Trust Fund website. And the Lawyer's Trust Fund is what basically administers the IOLTA program or process. I don't know if you want me to get into that specifics or not. Go for it. When you're holding client funds, I mean, the IOLTA rule has been in effect now for quite some time. But basically, when you're holding short-term or nominal funds on behalf of a client, it often became difficult how to attribute the interest. So the Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, 
passed a rule um, which is which was you know encompassed in Rule 1.15 that basically said short-term nominal funds can be put in a joint interest-bearing account called an IOLTA account, and the interest is then pooled and swiped out of the account and given to Lawyers Trust Fund of Illinois to administer. And basically, they then use that money for um, charities and bar-related funds and um, just basically giving back to the public, people who are harmed by attorney misconduct, things like that. So the, the interest earned goes to this body called Lawyers Trust Fund and they distribute the funds rather than individual attorneys who may hold you know, tens of thousands of dollars on behalf of 20 different clients and not know how to administer that uh, interest and how to divide up and divvy out that interest. Now, obviously, people hold large amounts of money for clients for a long time. In those instances, you can have a separate interest-bearing client trust account where that interest goes directly to the client. There's nothing in the rule that prohibits that. But in the instances in when it's short-term nominal funds, an IOLTA account is necessary. So that was, you know, long ago the IOLTA account came into play, and the Lawyers Trust Fund administers IOLTA accounts. They work with the banks to make sure the IOLTA accounts are operating correctly, that the interest situation is worked out correctly, and it's all mathematics. I'm, the reason I went to law school is because I don't like to do math, so I'm not too keen on how they work it all out. But I do know that Lawyers Trust Fund administers it, and on their website they've got a list of financial institutions that qualify as IOLTA account, you know, holders that, that attorneys could use to hold their client funds. Now with these new changes to Rule 1.15, the banks once again had to qualify and fit into our provisions of these new rules, and specifically they had to agree that if an attorney's IOLTA account is overdraft or a client trust fund account is overdraft, they will note automatically notify our office. That's a big change, and since this rule with the overdraft notification has become in effect on September 1st of 2011, we've received over 300 overdraft notices from banks. Now, the interesting aspect of that is not just the increase in our workload, which I find rather startling sometimes, but that of those 300, so far, almost 200 have already been closed. They're not resulting automatically in discipline. Now, before this came into play, if you would ask me how is this going to affect you, I would say, well, just by virtue of an overdraft notification, that means automatically the client funds have been converted. I, I would have thought it automatically equals prosecution and loss of your, you know, your license to practice. However, what we're seeing is there's bank errors, there's depositing errors, there's availability of fund, funds errors. There's a whole host of reasons why we will investigate and then ultimately close an overdraft notification. But the, the, the kicker is once we get an overdraft notification, we handle it just like any other investigation. So we send you a letter and we tell you your account has been you know, found to have been overdrafted. Explain this. Provide us with the bank statements. Provide us with the details. Um, and just like you said before the break, the biggest problem we're seeing is people who are not responding. And that's the biggest mistake you can make because, like I said, if we've already received 300 but almost 200 have been closed, that's a large majority of these cases are being closed if the attorneys are cooperative and if they respond in a timely and in an efficient process and fashion. 
so that if I could leave or impart any bit of information on people, it would be to respond quickly and to respond with as much information as possible. And as you saw in the, the second prong of these 1.15 changes, obviously there's a lot more um, detail involved in the ledger process, the journal process, and the accounting process. With all that in place, it should be very easy to respond to an inquiry from the ARDC regarding your client fund account because all of that information is being kept pursuant to the rule now. Wow. Sweeping changes. Can you over I, – I caught the second and third one. Can you go over the first one again? Sure. Basically, whereas before there used to be um, a carve-out for non-interest-bearing accounts, you could keep your client's money in a non-interest-bearing account. I don't know – who would benefit from that, but it was, an, it was an available option. Now the rule says no more. You can only hold client money in an interest-bearing account, okay? And there's only really two types of client trust accounts that are allowed, the IOLTA account and the non-IOLTA account. An IOLTA account is for short-term nominal funds, and a non-IOLTA account is for situations in which you're holding funds for you know, one client and you want that particular client to get the interest. They also account primarily for situations in which short-term nominal funds would be difficult to determine who gets what interest. You know, when you're holding $1,500 settlement and $1,000 earnest money for three weeks, how do you determine who gets that interest? So that's when the IOLTA account is used. If you're holding big amounts of money for a long period of time, like in an estate matter, um, then you would use a, um, a regular client trust account, and that could be done, and it doesn't have to be an IOLTA account, but it must be an interest-bearing account. And okay. also, all funds now have to be held at eligible financial institutions, which I kind of alluded to before. It's it's very – it's so many interesting questions come to mind, and I will ask you – um, some of them. As soon as we come back from our second break, well, we'll talk a little bit about trust account and IOLTA basics for new lawyers and what you can do to ensure compliance. We're going to uh, pause now for our second uh, break, and I want to tell you about a combination offer from Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and Chicago Lawyer Magazine. There's a new super low price. You can visit lawbulletin.com forward slash combo, and uh, what the offer is is for a limited time, Law Bulletin is offering a special of one-year subscription rate at $159, which is 43% off the normal subscription rate. Plus, if you act now, you'll receive a free one-year subscription to the Chicago Lawyer Magazine. It's a $60 value. So subscribe to Chicago Daily Law Bulletin by April 30th, 2012, and you'll also receive Chicago Lawyer 2012 for $180. So that's a good cost savings. Now, in addition to the daily coverage by about the Daily, uh, daily Center, what's going on there, as well as a federal courthouse and Illinois Supreme Court, the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin also includes, so you're going to get all of that great daily information, plus profiles of corporate counsel, lobbyists, legislators, and judges. You'll also receive case summaries and analysis regarding Steve Garmus's trial notebook, a favorite with many. Um, also, sports law stories, which I find personally interesting. Um, also, transactional law stories from non-litigators and uh, daily insights and trends, including comings and goings within the legal community. If that's not enough, you also get comprehensive Collar County court call coverage. I think that's a key one there. So comprehensive uh, court calls and all the caller, caller, I'm sorry, Collar counties here in Illinois uh, with recent additions of Will and Kane County. So that's great for any practitioner who's bouncing between uh, Lake and uh, Will and other places um, all over the place. So um, we see that from time to time. And then more stories. Uh, 
again from the caller county. Sorry, it looks like we may have. Are you still? Are you still there? Did I lose you? Oh no, I'm still here. Okay, you're still here. My screen's saying that you dropped, so sorry about oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's telling me. Caller has dropped. I'm like, oh, she's still there. So, anyways, um, back to my uh, announcement. Again, it's the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Super low price. You can visit lawbulletin.com forward slash combo. Again, if there's any attorneys listening out in uh, other counties, I know uh, I sort of grew up in Law and DuPage, and uh, Law Bulletin was more of a Cook County thing. Everything was listed there. The Black Line Trial Call and all is there now. Um, it's really good for anyone to stay up on things by being a Law Bulletin subscriber. It is, trust me, the subscription is certainly well worth it. Uh, now, more, a little bit more I want to tell you about ABA Tech Show 2012, again, coming up this weekend. If there's no other subject uh, with as much change, it's advancement as technology. And there's no other subject that's made more a substantial impact on the practice of law like technology. With new forms of technology available regularly, it's difficult to know what's worth consideration and what would help you be a better lawyer. The ABA Tech Show 2012 is a unique conference dedicated to helping legal professionals understand what technology is available and what will suit your needs. Whether we're reviewing new products that improve efficiency or make day-to-day activities easier, or examining technology requirements for firms of all sizes, ABA Tech Show 2012 is the event that brings lawyers and technology together in a format that suits both beginners through the techiest of techies. Don't miss the ABA Tech Show March 29th through 31st at the Hilton Chicago, where you'll uh, find out not only what you need to know, but who to know uh, in the area of legal technology. You can register for the event and visit the link. Actually, we put that on our ProServe PR marketing page on Facebook. So uh, look for ProServe PR marketing. Again, you can find that uh, Facebook, the Facebook link, the one Facebook link on our ProServePR.com uh, website. So you can find the link there. Register today for the event, or if you're just going to the exposition hall, which again is free, uh, you can it's located on the lower level of the Hilton in Chicago. So if you've never been to Tech Show before, you can go check it out this weekend. You can attend and register on site. I called them today. They told me this. You can register for free when you get there. Um, people are coming in from all over the country. Um, so I look forward to uh, attending, covering, writing about, and learning more at the Tech Show this weekend. All right. Enough about the tech show. Again, don't forget about lawbulletin.com forward slash combo for their great offer. And now we're going to go back to our program with Melissa Smart. And Melissa, um, I'd like to ask you a couple questions first, and then we'll uh, dive into some basics that you would recommend for new lawyers. Um, my, fir- my question is with uh, you know, with this new rule that banks need to notify the ARDC if an account is overdrafted. Uh, real quickly, what is the rule on commingling funds? I know that some people will put a dollar in just to keep the account open. Um, you know, what if, for example, there is a, and I'll give you a hypo here. Let's say that the, there's a deposit made and a check is paid out to someone and there's an availability problem. Um, attorney's concerned about getting dinged, so they're thinking that they'll deposit cash into the account for a day or two to keep things so that it doesn't get overdrawn. Uh, Tell us your thoughts on that. Well, first and foremost, commingling as a concept is expressly prohibited by the rules. You've got to remember that. However, as I spoke about before, and I think even one time before that when you were kind enough to ask me on the program, um, the new rules of professional conduct, which, you know, every single rule was changed, um, and that came into effect January 1st of 2010. With those new rules, for the first time it was codified that some benign commingling is allowed, okay? And it's for instances 
kind of what you described, not exactly. In situations in which, you know, some accounts mandate that you have to keep a minimum balance. Obviously, if you have to have a minimum balance in your account, some of that money is going to have to come from you. So some benign commingling is allowed. What you've described to me does not sound like that. It sounds a little bit like covering a conversion, but that's the prosecutor in me that's doing that. Um, you know, I'm not sure if that would be something that would result in public discipline, but it certainly could be conceived of or considered as commingling. And again, that is prohibited by the rules of professional conduct. But some benign commingling to keep a balance in an account for bank purposes, um, for account purposes, is allowed. Right. I um, I heard someone sometime was trying to transfer funds to pay. The attorney was trying to pay themselves and um, was concerned about leaving the account with zero balance. The bank would right. just then close the account. So right. um, there was a concern about putting a dollar in the account. Is that commingling? You know, people want to not run afoul of the rule. So I, I suppose the, the word to the wise for people listening is if you uh, are not sure whether a check is – wait till your check is cleared before you write a check to the client. Um, i got to like, tell you, Nick, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but with those 300 <laughs> overdrafts that we're seeing, I can't tell you how many times just I personally, and I'm not getting all of them. I'm only getting a certain percentage of them. But, I mean, every time I take a look at these – it's someone who's writing a check before they're depositing the insurance draft. They're appeasing a client who wanted to get their money immediately. They've already drafted the settlement statement so they know how much the client's getting. So they go ahead and write the check and just deposit this insurance settlement check at some point thereafter. And basically what they've done is they've paid one client with some other client's money. That is conversion. That is, that is the foundation of you know, what causes the public to mistrust attorneys. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul is what you're doing when you do that kind of thing. So I can't counsel people enough to not only make sure that those insurance drafts have been properly deposited, but call your bank, especially in instances when it's large amounts of money, six-figure settlements or more. Call your bank, talk to that personal banker, and make sure those funds have cleared. Because that's the other problem we're seeing is the insurance drafts are deposited the same day the attorney writes the check to the client, and let's face it, times are hard. I don't fault the client. They run to the currency exchange and cash that check immediately. Oh, sure. Okay. And then the conversion occurs because you've got to wait a few days for that check to clear. If it's an international check, if the insurance company is an international company or if the, you know, whoever the plaintiff is, the corporation, it's an international corporation, it could take sometimes upwards of 30 days for those checks to clear. In those instances, you have to wait. You have to counsel your client to be patient and to sit tight because if you don't and you pay that client before those funds clear, that is conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we're seeing these overdraft notifications. Some of the things I'm thinking about, too, uh, things that could happen, you could have a client who you give a check to and the client loses the check, sits on the check. Um, attorney believes that the check is stale after, let's say, you know, whatever the bank says or whatever the rule says, the check is stale after 90 days. Um, and after 90 days, the client runs and deposits. I mean, I can just <laughs> I can yeah. imagine all these scenarios. Oh, yeah. It, it gets really complicated, and to be honest with you, that's why these changes to 1.15 are actually so good. And I know people are scoffing when I say that, but really it's forcing you to do quarterly accounting of your, of your IOLTA accounts. It, you know, I've been at the ARDC now for 13, 14 years, and I have received calls from people on that ethics inquiry hotline where they call me with the odd problem of having too much money in their IOLTA account. And they don't know whose it is. And it's kind of like the scenario that you just described. The client fails to cash the check 
or they give the client the check and the client dies or, you know, something tragic happens and that check doesn't get cleared. If you're not doing regular accounting of your IOLTA accounts, you never know. And then at some point in the future, you wind up with too much money in there. Well, guess what? You, the lawyer, can't be unjustly enriched with that money. Somehow somebody's got to get that money. You've got to get it out of your account. So that's why these rules are actually so beneficial because they're forcing attorneys to do structured accounting and good ledger-keeping, journal-keeping practices so that they can avoid those kind of problems. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw another uh, throw another ball at you here. Um, what what happens if let's say um, let's say you have you agree to a flat fee of X for X work? It's a simple project. Uh, you know, you ask. Let's just call it a thousand bucks. Client sends mm-hmm. their check for a thousand bucks. Attorney says, "All right, I'm going to put this check for a thousand bucks in the client file. I know I'll be done with the work. Uh, you know, after you know tomorrow or the next day." Um, you know, or maybe a week from now, can that attorney just hold on to that check and then just cash it in the regular course of business, or do they need to run well, it through? Right. Well, the, you know, you're getting into a couple different complicated inquiries. First and foremost is, is that a retainer, a, a retainer fee or not? I mean, there are flat fees where the funds are earned immediately upon receipt. Um, I can envision certain criminal matters in which, you know, you charge $1,000 to do that DUI. The minute you pay that $1,000 to the attorney, it is earned, and they can put it in their personal account. They can do whatever they want with it. But if it's an instance in which it's like a large retainer fee, obviously the dowling decision, which you could read it in its entirety on our website. We also have an FAQ section on it. The dowling decision, which is a recent Supreme Court decision, it came down a few years ago, but that's pretty recent, um, which carves out three separate types of retainers. And I could talk for an hour just on the three separate types. But basically, it's your standard re- retainer, your advanced payment retainer, and you know the, the, the general retainers that you can use in when you're holding client funds. More often than not, you can, those, those funds that are given to you are the client's money until you earn them, okay? So you have to put it in your client trust fund account until you earn it. In situations in which it's $1,000, it's a little bit hard to hypothesize as to, you know, how, how long it takes you to earn $1,000 because it doesn't take long for attorneys to earn $1,000. But in instances when it's a large retainer, $10,000, $50,000 retainers, you put that in your client trust account and you take your money out as you earn it. So whether it's on a daily basis or a weekly basis, as you earn those funds, you're obligated to take them out. In situations in which you're putting client funds, whether it be retainer fee client funds or just any old client funds that you're holding on to, if you put them in your file, you're failing in your obligation to safeguard those funds. And that's a, a hallmark of the attorney-client relationship is to keep your client funds um, safeguarded and separate from your own funds. So that's one of the major tenets of our rules that's always been in place, even before these changes, even before the new rules of professional conduct in, in January 1st, 2010. So that's always been a rule that you have to keep your client funds safeguarded and you have to keep them separate and segregated. Wow. Um, first of all, I can't believe it's been that long since Dowling. I feel like that was yesterday. So again, good point, by the way, to you know, obligation to safeguard the funds and deposit those. So I guess rule to the wise is do not hold on to the checks. Um, the next question I have, just based on some of uh, what you shared earlier, Melissa, is uh, short-term and nominal funds. Are there any clear-cut, bright-line tests for what is short-term and what's nominal? That's such a good question. Actually, there's not. 
Um, and basically, you know, we always get that question in our ethics inquiry program. And, you know, there's no amount. We don't say, you know, over 5,000 isn't, you know, nominal. It's really just a reasonable reasonableness standard. And the rule actually states that the decision about where to place your funds, whether you're going to put them in an IOLTA account because they're short-term and nominal, or you're going to put them in a non-IOLTA account, that decision rests on the lawyer and in the, in the lawyer's reasonable judgment. And the rule actually says no charge of ethical impropriety or other breach of professional conduct shall attend to a lawyer's exercise of reasonable judgment in deciding whether it's an IOLTA account or a non-IOLTA account. So, I mean, to me, what I always counsel people when we get these ethics inquiry calls is consider the net amount of the interest. If, it's, if you're capable of earning money for your client, well, then why not put it in a non-IOLTA account? You just, you know, please them even further. But if it's going to be some difficult mathematical computation to figure it out, and believe me, you, it doesn't have to be that difficult for me to consider it to be difficult, then go, go with the IELTS account. It just simplifies your life. Good, good, uh, good suggestion there. We're going to pause for our uh, final set of breaks here, and then talk a little bit more about some uh, basics for young lawyers. I know I kind of blew through that segment with my questions, but I think that we covered some good information here. So, I again, want to uh, remind you about the ABA Tech Show this weekend, March 29th through 31st at Hilton, Chicago, um, to attend planning sessions and visit with the exhibitors. You can find a link on the ProServe PR marketing page on Facebook, and um, that link is found on our website at proservepr.com. Also, want to let you know that if when if and when you visit proservepr.com you can visit our newsletter page and sign up to receive free copies of the proserve post as well as our monthly emails where we send out short descriptions and links to our law talk radio program so you can listen to them anytime on demand that proserve post also covers uh my content i write for chicago lawyer magazine and other other folks as well as my own again i am always um, the one talking about DIY, PR, and marketing for lawyers. So uh, one of my goals is to certainly uh, educate those out there who want to deal, especially in litigation PR. There are a lot of pitfalls um, in publicity and, you know, the court of public opinion and media when dealing in litigation. So most people will uh, err on the side of doing nothing and not responding to the media. But in our 24-hour news cycle today, um, but sometimes you can do more harm uh, than good. So, again, lots of pitfalls and different interesting things, which is why um, I make myself available to, to firms and go in and do lunch and learn uh, talks to, to different folks at firms. Uh, because, you know, you never know when that next case is going to come in the door. You have uh, a situation where you're uh, divorced. I worked at a firm once where the client and the divorce ended up on the front page of the criminal section of the Daily Herald after he tried to bludgeon the uh, putative ex-spouse with a, a lead Pipe. So these things happen to people. You, know? you never so, know. Right. So, you know, and that day when, um, you know, someone calls from the Daily Law Bulletin or from, you know, from any of our publications, it's good to, um, you know, what I tell people is, and I help them with, let's carve out a plan, some boilerplate information, um, and a policy of what to do with media. And again, I cannot stress enough to people that media does not only mean NBC, it does not only mean, uh, you know, the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, it does not only mean the Tribune, it means Facebook, Twitter, all the different social media uh, formats are media as well, including blogs. So uh, very important to have your ducks in a row, so to speak. You can always get in touch with me on that. Um, I make myself available uh, and charge reasonable rates to go to firms, so that's my own little plug for myself there. Um, anyway, so back to our program with our guest, Melissa Smart. We've been talking about IOLTA uh, and the changes to Rule 1.15 and um, – 
if we could just quickly, very, very quickly, one through three, those main changes, and then some thoughts for young lawyers who are just getting started, Melissa. Sure. Now, you want me to repeat again the three changes to 1.15? Yeah, just so, the real quick one-sentence changes. Sure. As far as a recap, the first the first change is the um, allocation now that all client funds must be held in one of two types of client trust accounts, an interest-bearing IOLTA account or an interest-bearing non-IOLTA account. That's change number one. Number two, specific record-keeping requirements, 1.15A, 1 through 8 specifies ledgers, journals, and accounting techniques that you have to use when you hold client funds. And last but not least is the overdraft notification rule. Now, any financial institution that's holding client funds on behalf of attorneys is obligated to inform the ARDC if an attorney's account is overdraft. So those are basically the key provisions to the new Rule 1.15. Some of those elements were always present, but this overdraft notification is a big change. The, the specifics of the record-keeping requirements is a big change as well. Now, obviously, prior to this rule, it would have been helpful for us if we were auditing a client trust fund account to see people using these ledgers and whatnot. It certainly makes our job a lot easier, and especially if you've done everything right and you're defending yourself, if you could show it to us in, in this very, like, you know, formal, formulaic way, it makes our job easier. We close that investigation. So mandating this thing, th these these record keeping requirements, is really a good thing. So and and as for as for uh, educating young attorneys, um, first and foremost, I've got to say, get on our website and get your hands on our client trust account handbook. Not only do we physically publish it, you can request a copy at our office, but it's also online, so you can download a copy of the Client Trust Account Handbook. And it literally takes you through the entire process, the history of IOLTA accounts, the, um, you know, the basic fiduciary duties inherent in holding client money, um, safeguarding client money. But not only that, it cites the cases and rules, and then it gives you specific um, examples of the ledgers that are required. It gives you tips. It gives you FAQs, frequently asked questions. Everything is there in that client trust account handbook. You could even access on our website or on the lawyer's trust fund account uh, um, website um, institutions that will work with you to um, make sure that you're that you're complying with Rule 1.15. You know, financial institutions that have agreed to the overdraft notification and IOLTA process, and those financial institutions may already have these things in place. I mean, if you think about it from a business standpoint, a business perspective, if you're going to try to attract attorney attorney um, if you're as a bank, as a financial institution, if you want to attract attorneys to deposit their money in your account, then you want to be able to comply with these things. I can envision banks that may actually do the ledgers for you. So th that's what I would do as a first step, is to take a look at our client trust account handbook, educate yourself with regard to the rule itself, and adhere to the guidance that is available to you in the handbook and on our website. And if you have questions along the way, please, please, please do not hesitate to call our Ethics Inquiry Hotline. Um, it, we're, we're there to help and assist clients and hopefully avoid you becoming our next respondent. Well, to those respondents who are so unlucky because of, um, you know, usually things falling through the cracks, and I know that housekeeping can be uh, some of the problems that some of the sole practitioners have in uh, in dealing with so many issues, and especially some practice areas get dinged more often. Um, you know, I worked in family law and saw clients often 
filing ARDC complaints, and it was usually in connection with a fee petition for final fees and costs after the case was done, and uh, to the extent that there's a house not available for funds to come from escrow, now the clients were actually getting sued, and the lawyers getting judgments against the clients for uh, fees owed, and I saw that happen several times where people got ARDC beef. So, um, Melissa, when someone is uh, if you, well, what I'm getting at is, can you give us some of the um, some of the options for discipline um, and what gives rise to suspension as a general uh, type of thing, and, and what types of disciplinary things, and how long do they usually last? Well, it, it differs pursuant to you know whatever the rule of violation is. The discipline range itself can go from a reprimand to a censure to any varying term of suspension, all the way up to disbarment. Now, certain jurisdictions, not Illinois, have disbarment for life. Illinois, I believe, is actually exploring that as an option, but we currently do not have disbarment for life. Once you're disbarred, you can petition for reinstatement after five years from, your, from the date of disbarment. Um, so our discipline range is quite broad, um, and it's really hard to pigeonhole where, where things would lie because in addition to the standard discipline, we also have discipline that is imposed conditionally with probationary terms. So often you'll see, you know, someone who's neglected, you know, five or six cases um, comes in and presents possibly with, you know, a substance abuse problem or something like that. They've cleaned themselves up. They've shown that they've, you know, they've been rehabilitated. If we see evidence of that, we would we would ask for a sanction that can, that is conditional and a probation that is conditioned, I'm sorry, a sanction that is conditioned on probation. So we'd ask for the attorney to be suspended for one year, stayed after 30 days, and they have to comply with certain probationary terms, such as they have to come in for random drops or they have to continue to see their psychiatrist or psychologist. They have to report to our probation officer, things of that nature. So our disciplines really range dependent upon the sanction and dependent on the misconduct. Um, we're seeing a lot of disbarments. I don't know if you saw, saw in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin um, just recently, a day or so ago, um, the orders came down. And the only body that can discipline attorneys in the state of Illinois is the Illinois Supreme Court. We handle the prosecution of these cases, but ultimately what, what we as litigators get is a report and recommendation from a hearing panel. They're our trier of fact. There's appellate steps along the way, but we call it a report and recommendation because basically we're just recommending a certain discipline to the Supreme Court, and they have the option of agreeing with that or obviously disagreeing with that. If they agree and if they sanction an attorney, they send out orders, and they send out usually every couple months a big bank of orders of discipline. And in this most recent grouping of Supreme Court disciplinary mandates, we saw a lot of disbarments. It was really unprecedented, the amount of disbarments that we saw. Hmm. So it was kind of interesting, but disbarment is obviously the most significant sanction that you can get here in Illinois. Um, and it's really, you know, obviously anything over a three-year suspension, we say, is effectively a disbarment. I mean, you take anything over a year, really, it's, it's almost impossible to get back into the practice. Well, so, well, Melissa, well, I mean, what if you're suspended for six months? I mean, 30 days can be, you know, what do you do? Like, if you're a solo and you get suspended, you can't practice. You're pretty much done for a short while. Absolutely. And, you know, even even more so than that, government attorneys, I and mean, we recently, you spoke about social media, that's another trend that we're seeing. We talked about the, the trend that we're seeing a lot of attorneys getting involved in little modification scams. We're seeing attorneys getting themselves involved in disciplinary matters that involve their social media and that involve technology, people who are disclosing client confidences via blogs. 
um, things of that nature. Um, false friending to gain an advantage in a civil suit, like as an investigator, mm. investigatory technique. Things like that. Real, it's a real interesting facet of what we're mm-hmm. doing. It's a new trend. And in situations like that, those attorneys are being suspended. And they're, I mean, like you said, it, it, you, you find yourself basically losing your livelihood. Government attorneys who are blogging about things and disclosing client confidences have received 30-day, 60-day suspensions and lost their job. Mm-hmm. So it's really damaging. I mean, any sanction is harmful to the reputation of an attorney. I mean, even the lowest form of reprimand. You know, I wouldn't want a reprimand on my record, but um, any suspension is, is really just, you know, it could kill you. It could kill your career. It really could. Very much. And actually, this is just, this came up in the media. I was watching an episode of The Good Wife. And the first time I ever watched a show, I was watching it on Xfinity. You can go through your DVR and watch it. And um, the other night, I was folding out letters. And, uh, well, letter folding takes so much time. I actually send correspondence with paper still. Um, in addition, it's just a nice touch I like to do. But at any rate, yeah. I'm folding letters. And I'm watching the show, and one of the named partners on the show um, was suspended for, um, in the fictitious uh, state of Illinois, ARDC, whatever they called it, but he was suspended for uh, some time for conversion of clients' funds of something that was like 15 years ago. And there were all sorts of interesting things on the show about what the lawyer could or could not do. So um, let's say that, you know, let's step away from the solos. Let's say we got a firm where we got five lawyers and one gets suspended for 30 days. What can that lawyer not do while suspended? Well, there's a rule that relates to um, your obligations when you are disciplined, as a disciplined attorney, what your obligations are. And it's different for for attorneys who are disciplined for six months and more and those who are disciplined for six months and less. When you're disciplined for more than six months, there's certain things that kick in. You have to remove your indicia of, you know, ownership on the firm. You have to take your letterhead, your name off the letterhead. You have to take the, your name off the door. So that's really, you know, kind of a line in the sand. A 30-day suspension just says you can't practice law for 30 days. You can't hold yourself out as an attorney. You can't give legal advice, not even to friends or family. You cannot act as a lawyer for 30 days. So if you're in a law firm, basically you have to step out. You cannot have a presence in that law firm. You cannot come in and do legal research. You cannot come in and act as a paralegal. You cannot practice law in any capacity, and you really shouldn't even have a presence in a law firm whatsoever. And Mm -hmm. we see sometimes people, you know, kind of trying to skirt the rules. Well, I was just going to be a paralegal. The rule specifically prohibits you from acting as a paralegal or law clerk if you are a suspended or disciplined attorney. So mm-hmm. different states differ on that. Some states allow you to act as a paralegal. Illinois is not one of them. You can't even be a paralegal if you're disciplined. So, you know, it really is, you know, you can't do a real estate transaction and say, oh, I was, you know, I was just doing a real estate transaction. It's not the practice of law. If you're acting as a lawyer, if you're giving legal advice or guidance, you are engaging in the practice of law, and you can face additional charges for the unauthorized practice of law. Not something that people want to go through. All right, we're no. just about out of time. Um, I, so tell us again uh, some great resources for people who want to get more information about Rule 1.15 and all the other uh, wonderful resources offered by our Illinois Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission. Sure. Please check out our website, www.iardc.org. There's a volume of information on our website regarding Rule 1.15 as well as other rules. We have 
at least three or four webinars up there at any given time um, that range in topics. And we change our webinars every once in a while. Um, sometimes we'll give a presentation to a bar association or we'll go out you know, to like the DuPage County Bar Association do a presentation. We'll videotape that, put it up on our website as a free webinar. You can get CLA, CLE credit and you can get a lot of valuable information just from watching the webinars. And they're totally free. Um, you can just sit there from the comfort of your office or home and watch them on your computer. It's really easy and it's very informative and it's a great uh, way to get your CLE hours. Mm, additionally, yeah. additionally, we have links to our client trust account handbook. For purposes of Rule 1.15, which is our topic today, please take a look at that client trust account handbook. It contains a great amount of information and specifically gives you samples of those ledgers that you can, that you can use to comply with these new rules. And finally, there's different links to frequently asked questions that you can, and some of them address Rule 1.15, some, 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 some of them address other new rules, um, the Dowling decision. At any given point, we've got various different um, you know, groupings on there. Another thing that I forgot to mention, and it pertains to the newer lawyers, we've got an article on there that was written by our former administrator, Mary Robinson, that basically states what to do if you get a request for investigation or a beef from the ARDC. It kind of walks you through the process. Do I need a lawyer? Do I not need a lawyer? How do I respond? What if I need more time to respond? Things like that. It's really informative. If you do get a request for investigation or a complaint, take a look at that article. Then it's on our website. And then finally, and you know, not least at all, because it's a very important resource, is our ethics inquiry hotline. Call the ARDC at any time during business hours. You'll be forwarded to an attorney, and it's, it varies. It rotates amongst our staff. I take ethics inquiry calls. Other attorneys take ethics inquiry calls. I, the administrator probably takes ethics inquiry calls. We all do it because it's, it's a helpful function that we provide. If you formulate your question in an anonymous and hypothetical format, we'll, be free, we'll, we'll give you as much information as we can. We'll direct you to rules and case law, and we'll try to provide you with as much guidance as we possibly can. We can't give you an opinion. We can't say, oh, yeah, go do it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. We won't give you a set opinion because we're the prosecutorial arm of the court, of course. But we will give you as much guidance as we can. And it's, all, it's always an important and it's a valuable resource in delving into these, these conundrums that we face as practicing attorneys when we're looking at the rules of professional conduct and how do I comport myself and how do I you know, make sure I'm adhering to these rules. Thank you, Melissa Smart, for your time. Such great uh, information again, and of course, always an open door for uh, you to come back on the show with new uh, developments as they arise. It's always my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you again. All right, I want to also thank all of our listeners out there for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With our guests and listeners located from coast to coast, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program and bring people together to share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time. <laughs>